Well, good morning again. It's great to see everyone here. Uh, like I said, I know this is a kind of a vacation weekend, so I know that we might have a lot of guests with us. Um, this is part two of a two-week series, a long series, uh, called Circles and Rows. And like I said before, the whole basis for this series is just to focus on the different ways that we create community here at Bethlehem. In fact, we'll just put that on the screen right away. Our, this series is to understand why and how we create community at Bethlehem. And what we talked about last week was, uh, first of all, just the basic need for being connected. Uh, we looked at some of the dangers of being isolated. We talked about some of the joys of being connected. And then uh, we also talked about when you're connected with other people, you form shapes. Like right now, you're in the shape of a rose where maybe you know the people around you, maybe you don't. Maybe there's a strong connection with the person you're sitting next to. You know, maybe it's this awkward thing, like I wish they would have worn deodorant this morning. But either way, uh, we're in rows where either there's some connection or no connection. And we recognize rows are really good for being fed. Rows are great for addressing large groups of people at one time and, and feeding them with some ideas or feeding them most, mostly, in our setting, feeding them with the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for them. Uh, but at the same time, we recognize rows are not good for another thing, and that is accountability or taking steps. Uh, while sometimes, yes, the Holy Spirit can work on us in rows to say, I need to do something different with my life, and you actually do it. Um, for most of us, we need circles of people that actually know us and can hold us accountable to take certain steps in our lives. So every environment at Bethlehem is in circles and in rows. Um, we have you here in, in, in rows right now. We hope that you'll go home and, and have your growth group meeting, your small group meeting this week, so that you can meet in circles to talk about the things that we discuss here in church. Um, from our Fusion Kids Ministry, which is our Sunday school program, we have them meet in rows. There, there's a large group lesson. Then they break off into smaller circles to talk about it. Same thing with our, our middle school and our high school ministries. Everything is designed in rows and circles and rows and circles because we believe those are the shapes that make a difference. So if you missed last week, that's all you need to know right there. Um, this week, what I hope to do is, is give you just a glimpse of a vision of what it looks like when a person is connected in a row and in a circle. And, and to get there, I need to tell you a quick story, and I'm going to try to make it quick, but it's, it, there's so many details, I'm, it might be long, so just bear with me. The story goes back to when I was in high school. This is a completely true story, by the way. My freshman year, I was talked into being on the wrestling team. People in the first service just started laughing at that. I didn't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. But I was talked into being on the wrestling team. My freshman year, I was just horrible. I won maybe one match, two matches. One of them was against a girl. And that, that's a different story for a different day. That was just awkward. But I won maybe two matches. My sophomore year, I, I went out for the team again. I was persistent but not smart. In my sophomore year, there was kind of this turning point where I went from, okay, I'm just learning this stuff, to I can actually wrestle. I, I, can, I can put up some competition. And I remember the turning point was one match in particular. I was lined up against this guy, and I could tell right away he was shorter than I was and stockier, bulkier than I was. And you're thinking, that's not saying much. I know it's not saying much because I'm kind of tall and lanky. But this guy, I could just tell he was stronger than me. And as we started wrestling, I could tell that he was more experienced than I was too. That's how I analyze it looking back. At the time, I just knew I was getting beat up. I was getting kicked around that man. It was horrible. And he did everything but pin me. Everything but pin me. And if, if you know anything about wrestling, it's broken up into three periods of two minutes which doesn't sound long, but it's long if you're actually trying to do it. 
And um, the other thing is you can win not just by pins, but by points. And there's ways to get different points. If you, I think, it, is it get a, if you get up to 15, you win? Or is it more than, I can't remember. I try to erase that part of my memory. Anyway, if, if you get it by a certain number of points, you can win also. So here's how this match was playing out. So this guy just had me. His experience-wise, strength-wise, he just had me. Um, by the third period, I think he was up to about 13 points, and I had two. 13 to 2. And I'm just like, get this thing over with. Now, in one part of the match, I'll never forget this, somehow he got me up on his shoulders and he was standing up. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. I was somehow on his shoulders. Maybe it was like a fireman. I don't know. I was up in the air and he threw me on the ground, which is totally illegal. The, the ref warned him and the ref gave me a point. I'm like, yay, now I have three points. <laughs> But I remember that moment because after he did that, some of his teammates who were there, they said, oh, come on, Rodney. Just beat him. Don't hurt him. And I just get this anger, whatever it is, just welling up inside of me. And so I look over at where my team is. I see some of the other, peop some of the other guys on my squad. You know, they have the same uniforms on. And they just got their heads down. Like, oh. <laughs> they weren't that embarrassed until another guy in my team had actually lost to a girl. That was, <laughs> that was really bad. Uh, that doesn't sound right. I'm sorry. Anyway, <laughs> it was embarrassing. <laughs> so I look over, and, and my, the guys were embarrassed. I look at my coach. Okay, my coach is sitting on a chair there. And he's, again, he's just like the same thing. He's covering his eyes. He's just thinking, what do I tell Matt to, to help him out here? And he, he, I could tell, let's just get this over with. And then next to my coach was actually a person from our school with a video camera. They were recording these matches. And I later learned that even the video recorder gave up on me. The battery went out before the match was ended, and so it was like enough, and the person with the camera is just shaking it. But anyway, so here it is. It's like a minute left in the match. I know I'm down by so many points. There's no way for me to win, so I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to try, try what I can. What do I have to lose? So I'm exhausted. The other guy's exhausted. We're both standing up. I lunge in. I grab his legs. Perfect takedown. He's on his stomach, and the ref says, two points. I'm like, great. 15 or 14 to 5. You know, I'm still, still not going to win. So I'm like, well, matter of seconds left, I'm going to go out with some pride. So I take my arm, I put it under his arm, behind his neck, you know, the half Nelson. I crank, I crank, by the way, long, narrow arms, they're great for leverage. That's kind of, that was my hidden strength. So I'm cranking, I'm cranking, finally, he rolls over on his back, and I'm like, finally, I can just relax for a little bit, you know, let this thing ride out, and at least I'm going to lose with some, some dignity. And so I'm just laying there, and, and after a few seconds, I hear this pat on the, on the mat and a chirp of a whistle. I pinned that sucker. <laughs> I pinned him. I pinned him. ESPN was interviewing me afterwards. And <laughs> no, you know me better than that. I, I declined their interview. Afterwards, I was, I was looking at my teammates, I was looking at my coach, and I was looking at the person shaking the camera around, and it was just this excitement. They didn't win, but at the same time, they were a part of something big. They were there for that big moment. And, and maybe you've had that too. You've been a part of that comeback moment. Or maybe you were just in the stadium when your team, you were just shaking your head. You are like, this is just embarrassing. And you're thinking about, maybe I should just go home and beat the traffic rather than wait till the end. Been there? Been there, yeah, been there. Or you want to turn off the TV? Definitely been there. But at the same time, there's, there's something that all of us are afraid of. I don't want to be that person 
that gets out of the stadium and gets all the way to my car door and I'm lifting up the handle and I hear the stadium erupt because my team pulled it off. You don't want to miss it. You want to be there. It's not you that's winning the game, but still, if you're there, if you're with them, you are cheering them on and you are a part of that moment. Now, what we're talking about today is it's all about not missing that moment with one another. What we want to do today is we want to fill in number one. We want to make sure that we have circles set up so that we can be a part of that big moment together. And, and the thing that you start to think of is what do my circles look like? You know, do, do I just have a group of guys on the side with the same uniform and they're kind of stuck with me? <laughs> or do I have some people that are going to cheer me on no matter what? And, and maybe we're all thinking, I wish I could have a circle like that. Whether I was winning or losing, people who would be there for me just to be with me. Well, I believe that there are two elements, two things to keep in mind to get a circle like that. And we're going to uncover them in just a little bit. We're going to do so with the help of a story of, of something that, that happened to Jesus towards the beginning of his ministry. And as we look at this account, I just want you to pay attention to the way that a certain man had a small group of friends who helped him out in a very important way. And by the end, we'll talk about how we can have circles that are very much the same. So um, we're actually going to look at an account in, in Jesus' life that was recorded by two different people. Both Mark and Luke recorded this event, but we're going to check out Mark's, Mark's uh, um, account of it. And uh, just keep in mind, this is something that's happening in, happening in the very beginning part of Jesus' public ministry here on earth, about three years before he would suffer and die. So here's how we started off here. Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. I like Luke a little bit better because Luke is all about the details. Mark, Mark just gets to the point here. <laughs> You're looking at this. Jesus goes to Capernaum. There was no room in the house. I'm like, wait, what house? <laughs> Mark, slow down. And it's like he's, he's skipping a few steps. He says, there was no room left, not even outside the door. So what apparently happened is Jesus came to Capernaum with his disciples, and they found a house to set up shop in, and everyone went there to hear Jesus talk. Now, we don't know whose house it was, but here's an interesting thing that some people uh, highlight. This was early in Jesus' ministry. He didn't know that many people, or not that many people were diehard, you know, Jesus' disciples yet. Uh, but actually, Peter was from Capernaum. This was the hometown of Peter, where Peter would have had a house. So a lot of people think the house they were in was Peter's house. And I can't tell you that for sure, but we'll just go with it. Let's say this was Peter's house and we've got all sorts of people who are gathering together to hear Jesus speak. Okay, so, okay, what's so unusual about this day? Well, here's this next detail is what made it a little bit different. Some men came, bringing to him, to Jesus, a paralytic carried by four of them. Um, in today's language, we don't use the word paralytic so much, and, and I'm going to uh, look at the different options here. Often what we, we use is we say a person who's paralyzed or we're usually more specific. We say so-and-so is a paraplegic, which means, you know, their legs are paralyzed, or they're a quadriplegic. You know, like basically their entire body, their arms and their legs 
are paralyzed. Now, we don't know for sure which one this guy was, but I'll just offer you this one idea. Luke mentions in his account that this guy had to be carried on a mat across town. Now, if I'm going to carry a paralyzed guy, and if he has use of his arms at least, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a guy on this side and a guy on that side. We're going to hold his arms up, and we're just going to carry him because that's the most efficient way to carry a person across town unless he has no use of his arms. Then you need to put him on a mat or on a pallet of some type and just carry him like he's the queen of Persia. You know, carry him around town. And maybe it was humiliating for him, maybe it was this public display. Either way, my take is this guy was a quadriplegic, which was no small thing. Anyway, they bring him to Jesus, just the four of them. Now, I want to pause right there before we move on. These four guys, why were they friends with this paralyzed man? What do you do with your friends? Hey, how about we go out for a drink? Oh, wait. Never mind. Hey, how, why don't you come on over and have some supper? Oh, wait. Never mind. Hey, let's go throw the... F- no, can't do that either. Why would four guys say this is going to be our friend that we will carry wherever he needs to go? And here's the first thing that, that gives you a, a clue into what makes a circle strong. These four men had a love that was extremely, extremely wide. What I mean by wide is this. They had a love that was unconditional. No matter what this guy had to offer, they were going to be friends with him. They were going to love him. And this was a wide kind of friendship that they had. Not only was it wide, but we're going to see that in just a second. It was also deep, which I'll explain in a second. So here's the thing, though. They tried to bring him to Jesus, but they were unable to. The crowd was just too big, too great. And they looked at the doorway. They're like, there's no way we're carrying this guy on a mat through a doorway. There's just too many people to get through. It's impossible. So I, just want, I, I wanted to pause right here because I want you to finish the story in modern-day terms. You're carrying this paralyzed guy. It's this hard thing. It's this difficult thing. Four of you have to lug him around. And you see that you can't get to where you need to be. So what do you do? What do you do? Now what I'm about to put on the screen, I'm just going to warn you, this is not the Bible. This is the the Matt Ewart version. This is how I would finish the story if I were writing it and finishing it in modern day times. Here's Here's what I would say. Since they could not carry him to Jesus because of the crowd, they said to their friends, sorry buddy, we gave it our best shot, but it just didn't work out. Maybe next time. And you know what? Their friend would have been touched by that. Their friend would have been like, you know what? I get it. You guys carried me all the way out here. There's just no way we can get in. I understand. Let's just turn home and, you know, forget about this. Maybe next time. Maybe Jesus will be back. We'll see. We'll see. Or maybe in in modern day terms, this is what would have happened. So they would have tried to bring him to Jesus, but they couldn't because of the crowd. So they went and started a journal at caringbridge.org to raise awareness of their friend's condition. What I'm getting at is there were all sorts of things. They had already proven their love and their concern for for their friend. They didn't need to do anything more. But, but, if they were truly driven by a love that was not just wide, but also deep, they're not going to stop. So this is what they do. Here's the real version. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus. Pause there, pause there. 
So of all the places in this house where Jesus was standing, they had to know where he was. And then they had to go on the roof and say, this is where he is. And then they had to say, this is where we're going to make the opening. What I'm getting at is, this required planning. But they found the spot, and, and, and they said, this is the spot where he's at. So they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and then they dug through the roof. Uh, back in those days, roofs would have been flat, and basically there was a big support that held up the roof, and that, they had some planks that went on top of that, but then the main ingredient was dirt. They would just cake in dirt on top of these roofs to keep them, uh, to keep them weatherproof. And so they were digging, 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 digging. And not just a little bit of an opening, but enough to lower their friend down. They lowered the mat the paralyzed man was on. So I want you to just imagine that. Again, Mark doesn't tell us, how do you get that paralyzed guy on the roof to begin with? Was one of them like a MacGyver where he could make a pulley system out of whatever? You kids know who MacGyver is? Okay, Lego movie, there, it was one of them like a master builder where he could just take stuff and put it together. Now, you, okay. We don't know how they got him up on that roof. All we know was that they were so determined to do it that they found a way to make it happen. Now, before I make one point, <laughs> picture what it was like inside that house when this was going on. Pretend that you're part of the crowd, you're in that crowd, maybe you're towards the back with some of your friends, and, and you're looking at Jesus and he's preaching, everyone's just listening, standing room only. All of a sudden, you hear these plops on the roof, and you're like, man, those are some big squirrels out today. Thump, thump, thump. And then you see some dust starting to fall right in front of Jesus, some little particles. And you're thinking, oh, Peter, you better call the Terminator guy tomorrow morning. Something's not good up there. And all of a sudden, as, you sit, as you're listening to Jesus, all of a sudden, this ray of light shines down from the roof. And you're like, wow, this is really bad. This is really weird. And then the widening gets bigger. All of a sudden, you see four heads plop down. Look around. You're thinking, what is going on here? Maybe you even know one of them. You're like, Johnny, this is not a good time. Get, get back up there. Jesus is about to, to finish his sermon. And, and all these weird things. And then all of a sudden, this mat comes down. And you're thinking, oh, man, Jesus is going to be upset. Couldn't they just wait? Here's the thing. These four friends didn't just have a wide love for their friend. They had a deep, sacrificial love for him. Because you know what? When you dig a hole in a roof, what do you have to do later? Pay for it. Or fix it. You have to come back and invest some time and money and resources to get that thing better. But they said their friend was worth <laughs> that sacrifice. So they made that opening and they lowered him down. So they didn't just have this, this wide and this deep love for their friend, but they must have been compelled by the person inside. Here's what they believed and here's what they thought. They said, if we can just bring him to Jesus, something good will happen. All their time and energy getting him into this house, and you think, well, why couldn't they just wait? No, they couldn't wait. They needed their friend in front of Jesus now because something good will happen. And something good did happen, just not exactly what these friends were expecting. So the man drops down. There's this paralyzed man sitting in front of Jesus. And it says, when Jesus saw the faith of these five people, the four guys and the paralyzed man, 
when he saw their faith. I'm going to pause there. So often we think of faith as this personal, internal thing that nobody can see, and you can't judge me based on what faith I have because it's this personal, invisible thing. And Jesus, it says Jesus could see their faith. He could see their faith. And I'm going to give you a clue. It's not because he's using his God vision, like to look in their hearts, and he's like, oh, I see it in there. He doesn't just see their invisible faith. He sees their faith being put into action. Uh, How would our lives look if we could do that same thing? Where we didn't have to tell people, hey, I'm a Christian, or hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. People would look at our lives and say, I can see your faith. I can see the love in your life. So when Jesus looked at these men, he said he could see their faith. And then he said to this paralyzed man, what nobody was expecting, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the friends are like, wait, that's not why we brought him. (laughs) Hold on a second. We brought him here for a different reason. But you know what? When you bring your requests to God, when you pray for miracles, sometimes God will look at you and he'll say, yep, I see what you're talking about, but there's something bigger we need to handle first. First thing he does with every person, whether they're paralyzed or not, is he lifts a great burden off of them. Your sins are forgiven. Which brought up an awkward moment because here's the thing. This paralyzed man, his sins were between him and God. Between him and God. So who is Jesus to come in and say, oh, your sins are forgiven? Who is Jesus to say that? And this isn't just me wondering this, but actually the people who were in that room were wondering this. Um, Mark goes on to explain in verse 6 here. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. In other words, he's taking the place of God, which was a big no-no. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were exactly right. Only God can forgive sins. Now here's what Jesus does. Next verse. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And here's what I think. I think Jesus forgave this man's sins first so that this would come up. Either way, Jesus, this is him using his God vision now. So he looks into their hearts and he says to them, why are you thinking these things? And he heals up two options for you. Okay, let me throw something out here, guys. Which is easier? Number one, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or number two, would this be easier? To say to him, get up, take up your mat, and walk. Okay, so guys, think about that. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, number one, or to say that uh, take up your mat and walk, number two. Um, So number one or number two? Number one or number two? To forgive or to heal? Which one's easier? To forgive or to heal? Which one's easier? Good answer. Maybe that's not a fair question. I think what Jesus was getting at was this. To forgive, you needed to be God. To heal, you needed to be God. Which one is easier? They were scratching their heads. They're like, well, both of them are impossible. Only God can do these things. So here's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, so hold on, hold on, hold on. So you're saying that if I can do this, then I also have the right to do this. So here's what Jesus does. Next verse. Jesus said to them, But that you may know that the Son of Man, me, has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
he said to the paralytic, paralytic, he said, I tell you, get up your mat and go home. And then this is what happened. This man who everyone knew, this man who was paralyzed, he got up, he took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And here's where we kind of go back to the beginning. This amazed everyone. They praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Or you could also say, we have never been a part of something this big. Jesus made one thing clear to those people. He had the power to heal. Therefore, he had the authority to forgive. Now, I, I want to I apply that to you real quickly because every time you come here to Bethlehem and you hear me say your sins are forgiven or you hear somebody up here say your sins are forgiven, you should rightfully be skeptical about that. You should say, Who does this, why does this person have the right to say that? I shouldn't have that right. In fact, you can even look at it this way. You can even challenge what Jesus did. You can say, well, okay, well, Jesus just died on a cross and he said, I'm doing this to forgive everybody. Couldn't you do the same? Couldn't you just go up, die on a cross and say, Father, I'm doing this for the sins of the world. Just punish me instead of everyone else. Couldn't you do that? Here's the thing. If, if you really want to talk about the authority to forgive sins, you have to demonstrate that you have the power of God to do it. So, Try this out. This is how it applies to you. Which is easier? One or two. Which is easier? To forgive you of your sins or to bring the Son of God back to life? Which is easier? And what God does is he points to this time and time again. He says, my son is risen. He has come back from the death to prove to you that your sins are forgiven. Because here's what we learned from God. His love for the world isn't just this I love the world kind of thing. Everyone, unconditional love for all of you, blanket love, I wish you the best. It's not just this wide love that he has for everybody, but God has a sacrificial love, a deep love for every individual in this world. And when wide meets deep, people get forgiven. Our third fill-in for today, Jesus' resurrection proves your forgiveness. It's what makes your circle with God so, so tight and so certain. And of all the things you can doubt about Jesus or about the Bible or you know, whatever it is, if you are firmly based on the, the resurrection, everything else falls into place because this was God showing you and proving to you your sins are forgiven. Now, now, maybe you can see two elements to this story that we just went through. So this, this man, this paralytic, he had some friends who were in a very tight circle. They loved him widely. They loved him deeply. They, they loved him unconditionally and sacrificially. And also we see the love of Jesus for this man and for all of us, to love us not just widely, but to love us deeply. Now, I want to apply those points to something that you can take home with you. And the first one is really, really easy. It's just fill in number two. Fill in number two on your sheet. It's this idea that if I could just bring this person to Jesus, something good will happen. If I could get them into an environment where they get to hear or experience the love of Christ in one way, something good will happen. 
And we, we, we've talked about this before, you know, there's good ways to invite people to church or invite people to, to one of our environments. Um, don't just say, hey, come to church this weekend, but say, hey, I'll meet you at the 11 o'clock service and I'll see you by the Welcome Center or whatever. You know, be specific. There's good ways to, to bring people to Jesus because we know, we believe that good things will happen. The thing is, there's, there's another fill-in on your sheet. So you know, okay, there's something else that we got to figure out. One thing that, that Jesus really emphasizes in the New Testament is that you are the body of Christ. You are the hands and the feet of Christ. Uh, it, it's, it's your role to love one another, and this is in 1 John quite a bit, love one another because this completes the love that God has for you. Love one another. And so as much as we love and as much as we encourage people to, to bring people to Jesus, because this is a church that's passionate about that, there's another element to this that we get to put into practice. If we can bring Jesus to him, something good will happen. If I can be Jesus or bring Jesus, whether that means I'm talking about what he did on the cross, an empty tomb, or the resurrection, or maybe I'm just being nice to someone. If I can bring Jesus to someone, Something good will happen. And this is the foundation for our small group system also, for our circles and our rows. Because in order to bring Jesus to someone, most often you need to know their name. Most often you need to know what they're struggling with and what they're wrestling with. Most often that means you need to know what to celebrate with them. To bring Jesus to people means that you are connected with them in a way that goes beyond what you see in the rows, but it's a blessing that we see in circles. Circles where you see a wide and deep love demonstrated by Christ. So as, as we uh, leave today, then maybe just keeping that opening illustration and thought, you know, the, the idea that you're in this stadium, something big is about to happen, you don't want to miss it. And I wish I had time to tell you all the stories about what happens in circles where, where people go through real life together and they, they share their joys, they share their sorrows. And so many times there, there's this one moment where they're feeling completely alone, completely left out. But then they look to the sidelines, they see their circle around them, and they say, you know what? I know what happens when deep meets wide. I know what happens when people bring Jesus to me, even when I can't get to him. And what happens is always good. Let's close with a prayer. Dear Savior, I, I praise you every day. I, I think of this every day. The, the amazing love that you have for all people, including me. That you would love with the love so wide that, and without conditions that you would see me as I am and as I was a sinner that was dead in his sins, and you would yet have love for me. And yet, not being content with that, you had a love that was also deep, a love that sacrificed everything for my benefit. Today, as we marvel at that relationship, let us uh, help us and equip us to overflow in that idea with the relationships around us, that we would invest in circles of people that would be able to be there for us and we there for them. To help to, to see the wideness of our acceptance and, and our love for all people, coupled with a sacrificial, generous love that expresses itself through actions. 
Uh, we know that this is, this is not an easy thing, but we know that this is uh, something that gives you glory, and it's a way that we get to demonstrate our love for one another. So I ask you to equip each person in this room and to encourage them to be filled up with your love and to overflow in that love for one another. Uh, bless us the rest of this day and this week. Uh, be with us and let us do all things for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray as we also join in the prayer he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, we'll continue by gathering an offering at this time. Um, this is a, a way for... Uh,